Hello and welcome to the 10th series of the DNVGL Talks Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Steck. In this series, we take a fresh look at the role businesses play in lowering the world's carbon emissions and how they can work with governments, policymakers, and other key decision makers to transition faster to a clean energy future. In this episode, we explore the role solar plays in helping to accelerate the energy transition and I speak with Harald Overholm, CEO and co-founder of Alight, about some of the reasons behind the huge increase in demand for solar power. Harold talks about the exciting potential for solar energy to account for up to 50% of global energy production within our lifetime, thanks to a combination of low price, sustainability and flexibility and the incremental advances in solar technology that are helping to fuel demand from corporates. Harold also describes the need for more entrepreneurs within the energy industry to drive forward the transition with passion and vision. We hope you enjoy the episode. Harald, we want to talk about the importance of solar energy for the energy transition today. But before we do this, it would be great if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself and explain what Elite is doing. To me, solar has been a bit of a calling, I think, throughout my career. I spent 15 years now in uh, solar and uh, clean energy um, in different ways. I graduated 2005 as a renewable engineer. And I think even at the time, I was very, very focused on... Uh, just going into clean tech and and finding a way to turn that into my to my career and why is it a calling i mean i think it's just the fundamental logic of uh climate change and, and the the enormous challenge that that means just is so feels like such a critical issue to work on um i never had the patience to work on anything else really and i remember how solar became important to me because when I graduated in Sweden, I knew renewables, but but solar was still really small. Um, renewables in Sweden was much more about biomass and wind. And then my first job as a as a clean energy investor, I was sent to Milan in 2006 for the EU PVSEC conference. And this was kind of like a fact-finding trip for us because we didn't know much about solar. Um, and as I got there, I didn't know what to expect, really. I mean, it was... It was something that I hadn't engaged with much, but I got there to Milan and I got to the conference center and it was this massive, really massive exhibition area with what I've just immediately realized was highly professional people from across the globe. And I was just struck by how this industry was ready to, to go. I mean, it wasn't at all a future industry. It was an actual uh, functional industry. And it seemed to a large extent, to also be perhaps the key answer to the climate change issue. So from that point on, I mean, from understanding how how this global, how ready the industry was, it really, for me, that was a movement I, I really wanted to be a part of. Um, so I spent a number of years as a clean energy investor. And then increasingly, my interest became, how can solar be growing on a subsidy-free basis? How can it be an actual commercial kind of organic uh, process? Because that seemed to be very important in terms of making it long-term viable, not just something based on um, the individual decisions of governments, but just something based on demand. Then I was able to go to, to Cambridge and do research for three years. So I left my uh, investor role to go to, to Cambridge and do research. And the that was the second kind of epiphany for me in solar because I had identified someone, a guy called Jigar Shaw in the US, who, who kind of became my hero at the time. He'd built Sun Edison, which was arguably the first company that turned solar into a commercial business model. 
Um, and Jago seemed to have all the answers, but but I was, for some reason, I just hadn't found a way to reach him. But then at Cambridge, by chance, I met someone who just said, oh, you know, Jago Shaw, I know that guy. Uh, I'll, send, I'll send him an email right away. <laughs> and he sent off an email and, and Jago wanted to meet me in the US. And so that became the start of my uh, my PhD period at Cambridge. I was able to to do my PhD about the US market for subsidy-free solar, uh, largely based on learning from the entrepreneurs like like Jigger. And then seven years ago, when I was done with the, with the PhD, so based on that, based on my findings from the US, we started Alight with a vision to take subsidy-free solar as a packaged business model to Europe, to bring the US experience to Europe. And so, yeah, that really goes back to solar being a calling, but I think, I think being able to turn it into an organic business model, that is really how you put that calling into action for me. And Alight symbolizes that uh, to me. Harald, we will go a bit deeper into detail what Alight is doing for the industry, for the solar industry. But before we go there, I would like to start with a big picture question. Three decades ago, solar was a bit of a niche R&D topic. Today, it is very successful in many places. It can reach the levelized cost of energy. How important is solar power for the energy transition? Well, I think solar is going to be very important for the energy transition, right? But the riddle here is, is that this far, it's not been that important, if we're honest to ourselves. It's at, at this stage, is at I think the last time I looked, it was 2.9% of global energy production. So you have this massive potential, but you still have a small footprint. And as far as I can tell, these last two or three years has been really a tipping point for solar. So maybe now is the point where solar starts to prove that it actually will be important. I think last year and, and the last two years, solar has been the most um, installed uh, new energy production uh, technology in the world globally. So it's almost, I think, last year, 50% of the new generation capacity that was installed was solar. And last year, the uh, the estimates for levelized cost of energy, so the, the, the cost of producing energy from different types of, of energy sources, solar was the cheapest uh, globally. And this Lazard is, is the, the company doing this global outlook. And that really symbolizes something, because that's happening now over these last two years. So probably you know, this is where we will start seeing solar really grow to become very important internationally. I mean, how important it's going to be? We've all seen these, you know, the scenarios of IEA, uh, how they've forecasted solar going forward and being consequently very wrong, you know, from, from every, every year that they've tried to. So perhaps none of us know. I mean, I think DNV, certainly yourself, you have long-term forecasts, so I, I shouldn't be the forecaster here, but I think it's not crazy to think that solar is going to be 50% of, of global energy production at, at some point within our, within our lifetimes. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think solar is heading towards a very big role to play. So certainly we have seen the prices for solar dropping um, dramatically over the last couple of years. But what would you say other than that are the main success factors for solar? Yeah, so as you're saying, uh, the main success factor for solar, of course, has been that it's become very cheap in terms of producing energy. But And the second very obvious success factor is, is that it's clean, obviously. So it fits into every kind of framework, uh, whether you're an investor or you're a customer or you're a, a government, solar is something you want to engage with. But I think what's perhaps sometimes overlooked in the general conversation is how flexible in terms of size solar is and why is that important to deployment rate well it is because it means that physically you can do solar in so many different situations you can do the massive mega scale rollouts in a, in a desert somewhere but you can also do the individual rooftops and everything in between 
and you can do the floating solar as we've seen agri solar uh, all of these things coming along and that's almost you can't compare that to any other kind of energy i mean certainly with wind which is a fantastic uh, way of producing energy it's still uh, the land development around wind is always difficult and it's bound to to stay so and i think not only does this mean that solar is physically very flexible but it also means that solar can reach a lot more ways of creating value so solar can be installed to create value for a single consumer on a rooftop and that's one kind of value i mean solar can also be deployed at a very large scale to just create what we call merchant value or kind of speculative energy pricing value for, from from a, from an investor uh, and there's another five or six use cases that you can think of so yeah, I would, I would think that that is actually something that's underlying solar growth that is a bit unique for the technology. So if we look at the growth to date, uh, and maybe at the growth we are expecting, where do you think was that coming from? Or where is it coming from? Is it more coming from corporate or consumer uptake? And will that change going forward? I mean, if you look at the EU, historically, uh, the growth has come from the government, basically, because from government feed-in tariffs and auctions. Now, that is changing, uh, and it's changing to corporates mainly. And it's it's logical that it would be corporates, because if you look at power use in society, I mean, corporates use about 70% of all of the power that's produced in society. So it's logical that they would have a say in how the energy system is changing, and that they would be an important driving force. But And I mean, residential will matter too, but it's again, it's a smaller part of the uh, of the equation, and residential by nature amounts to a whole lot more people making a lot more smaller decisions. So the growth will always be a little bit slower in residential. So what we see globally is that corporates are really leading uh, the rollout. And I think we, we crunched a bit of the numbers ourselves in terms of what is driving the EU market. Four years ago, it, the almost entire EU market was driven by government subsidies in, in one or another way. And this year, these are our own estimates, but, but crunching data from from people like Bloomberg and New Energy Finance um, and Solar Power Europe. Our estimate is that about half of the planned solar build-out that is confirmed this year, 2020, comes from corporate uh, corporate buying, corporate buyers of clean energy. So certainly it's a very large shift in the EU right now pointing towards the corporate uh, uptake. So, Harald, let's talk a bit about Elite. You are helping large corporate customers with cost-effective solar energy for long contract periods maybe you can give us a bit of background what Elite is doing how it's doing this and you can maybe also give us a few examples from the industry yeah definitely so we do the essence of what we do is what's called a power purchase agreement um, and a power purchase agreement is just a it's a business model for solar where the where the essence is that the the power user the corporate uh, is just paying per produced kilowatt hour um, period. So they're not paying anyone for the capex of the installation. They're not paying for the installation. They're not paying the upfront cost. They're just paying as the energy is produced per energy produced. And and something new is then built for them. So by signing up to buy energy per kilowatt hour, they are making sure that someone else can build something new. So they're not buying the kilowatt hours from some existing solar plant. They're buying it from something that's being created for, for them. And at the price that should be creating a saving for them day one, certainly. And now the whole point of doing this is, of course, simplicity. So this is what we inherited from, from the Americans. Uh, we're not invented corporate PPAs ourselves. We have learned from the US market uh, and we've seen how powerful this can be. It's powerful because it's very easy. So this is how 
corporate customers are used to buy energy. They buy energy today per kilowatt hour from the grid. You're not forcing them to have any kind of behavior change. You're just helping them to buy new and better energy, but in exactly the same way. Um, and secondly, by saving money, if you can use the cost uh, level of solar to really turn that into saving for a corporate, then you know that you will be driving strong demand because, um, of course, I mean, a lot of corporates are motivated by the green aspect as well, but there's almost no one who uses power who doesn't want to achieve a saving day one. So if you can create savings day one in, in an incredible way, then you know that you have something that is going to be relevant to look at for almost every power user. So that's in essence what we do. We create the power purchase agreements uh, by talking to customers and we have the long-term capital uh, and we source the long-term capital in order to be able to build these assets and then own them and manage them ourselves over, over the long term. So what do I do if I am a customer who would like to do this, but neither do I have the space nor am I in an area where there is enough sun? Yeah, so it's a good question. And, and First of all, I mean, so there are two big use cases for this. The one is the on-site rooftop. On-site is typically rooftop, but it's when we do something on your own premises that can be a rooftop. It can also be the parking lot or it can be the ground next to your rooftop, but it's within uh, your premises. The other use case is when you do a PPA for a ground-mounted solar off-site. So it's, it's a field somewhere out there. And we're going to transport the energy to you via the grid or, or actually, I mean, obviously transportation is not really what happens, but what it, it's a financial and it's a legal contract that makes sure that you get the benefits from, from this electricity produced. So some corporates will opt for both these options. They will, they will want solar on their own premises, but also uh, in order to get a larger volume of solar, they will want it um, from, from the grid. Uh, others will pick one of these depending on what's most lucrative for them. So we see big companies, I think Tesla, for example, is doing this, who build large solar farms and then basically internalize maybe the energy cost in the sense that it's suddenly on their balance sheet. It's just a capex and an opex, certainly to keep it running, but they don't have volatility in the electricity prices. Um, if we compare this to the PPA model, what is the better fit there? Or does that depend on the company? And how can PPAs maybe even incentivize your customers to to go for these solutions i think it's very similar so tesla is a very large ppa supplier in the us so tesla energy is is one of the was originally solar city which is one of the pioneering companies of, of power purchase agreements so tesla would know very well how to do this themselves uh, and then also perhaps do it for themselves so they will essentially create the ppa for themselves But essentially, it's it's exactly this. I mean, what they're doing is to to create a, a PPA for themselves, but the value of the PPA will be that it, they save money up front. They, it protects them from power price fluctuations over time, protects them from volatility. And it's, of course, a, a, an essential part of being green or, or having a, a strong sustainability footprint. So, yeah, I would, I would see that as, as exactly this kind, of, this kind of driving force. Okay, so we are all uh, hopeful that renewables takes this important role in the energy transition. To make this happen, though, we also need to work on the energy infrastructure. What would you think needs to happen to actually get the most out of the benefit out of renewables in the transition on, on the side of the energy infrastructure? Yes, yeah, very important, isn't it? I mean, um, the grid has been pivotal to all kinds of, of, of energy build-out uh, that we've had. But there's probably a lot of things that need to happen to the grid in order to accommodate uh, solar going forward. Um, to some extent, 
a lot of that is I'm, I'm probably not the, the right person to comment on the details of that. But what I really can comment on and what I think is uh, uh, an, an underviewed point to make here is the services to the grid that can be provided by solar. Because it's increasingly clear that the reliability of the grid, the, there is a huge role to play for solar, especially when you combine it with storage and you combine it with some intelligence that automates the, the, uh, the function of the storage. Solar can do so much to provide essential, what we call reliability services back to the grid. And, and reliability services can be things like frequency and voltage regulation, um, which is not sort of power per se, but it's more of the quality aspects of, of the grid. Um, but reliability services can also relate to actually how you, you know, when you produce power in time, you can move power back and forth in time to make it easier for the grid. And we've seen a number of cases. So there was a, a great case a few years ago where First Solar in, in California did the 300 megawatt plant and optimized it to sell reliability services back to the local grid operator, which I think was um, PG&E at the time. And they, could, they came to the conclusion that uh, they could basically produce almost the full amount of solar electricity from the plant while at the same time delivering excellent reliability services back to the grid. Um, and even with even better flexibility and quality than a comparable gas peaker. So this is very interesting. It, it tells you something about the untapped potential of distributed energy resources. And then, but then you might ask, okay, so what, what needs to happen in order for this to really work uh, and in order for solar to kind of really contribute to grid reliability? And certainly we as suppliers, we have a lot of work to do uh, in order to just activate this functionality. But there's an interesting story here also, I think, in terms of uh, marketplaces. So the grid owners and or the governments will need to open up sophisticated marketplaces for uh, creating liquidity and creating a pricing point and, and creating a depth of contracting around these reliability services. And then if, you know, once we as a market, we see those price points and we see those markets, we can respond to that and we can build business models around that and deliver uh, a lot of services back. And then coming back to your original question, the, uh, the issue then is, okay, to what extent can this actually defer other investment costs in the grid? And I do think, I mean, here's where I'm not an expert, but, but reading up on the, what's going, what, what's been seen in California and in other places where they've tried this, I think to quite a large extent, actually, uh, the uh, the projected investment needs in the grid can be partly transferred then to distributed energy operators if the price point is right and if the marketplace is there. So you alluded to new technologies and new business models in your answer just now. I'd like to go a bit deeper there on the technology thing and uh, look at this from two different perspectives, maybe. So number one, there is a lot happening in the space of solar technology itself the efficiency of the panels, for example, if you could tell us a bit about that, what we can expect there, but then also other adjacent technologies like energy storage and data processing activities, abilities. Could you give us a few insights there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the first question as to what's happening on the actual solar production side, um, it's sometimes I find myself giving, you know, the kind of the dull answer to that question, which is that um, a lot of things are happening, but perhaps nothing revolutionary. Um, but really what's, what we benefit from as an industry is just to keep shaving the end the production cost of solar. And we do that in a lot of, in a myriad ways in parallel. Nothing revolutionary again, but just the combined effect of everything from the panels. There's this constant sort of 
incremental innovation going on on the panel side. You've probably seen things like bifacial panels that can that produce electricity also from from the diffuse insulation that comes from from the back of the panel. Basically, it's just one of many examples of how the existing crystalline silicon technology is just becoming a little bit more efficient, a little bit more cost efficient every day, and it contributes to the end goal, which is to lower the cost of electricity. Now, because of how the solar market is working globally, where typically you want to, there's kind of an ecosystem around a finalized solar installation. There is, you know, someone is financing it, someone is insuring it, someone is providing warranties, someone has installed it, etc. It's really an ecosystem that has to work together. And I think because of that, we're unlikely to see much traction in new panel technologies so the, the the crystalline silicon technology that we've been using for such a long time now i mean it's really the first pv technology ever to to emerge the whole ecosystem is kind of adapted to work on that technology and seems if i can just make a projection seems very unlikely that that's going to change but instead what you're going to see is a lot of ways in which we keep shaving the production cost, um, and as far as we can tell, the, the production cost keeps going down with about 10% every year uh, from these learning costs. Uh, so that was the first question about the existing generation technology. And the second question of storage and what's happening in that market, I think, just speaking from our point of view as someone in the market who's we're looking to deploy storage, that's, that's really something we want to do, actively looking at situations. What is the bottleneck? I mean, why aren't we doing that? even today. Um, and the bottleneck is squarely, I think, in terms of the digital automation of how you create the value from, from storage. So it's not, not the digital, not, not the actual digital side of just running the battery, which is which is fairly straightforward and it's out there. But more, you know, you want the battery to create financial value in a, uh, in a predictable way, because otherwise you can't build a business model around it and you can't finance it, uh, etc. And in order to do that, you have to automate the battery dispatch so that it really works across uh, a number of, of situations and that it can kind of create several different financial values on top of each other. So it probably needs to create some kind of value from frequency regulation and another kind of value from time of use, uh, energy time of use, uh, shifting, load shifting, etc. And there's no way you can have an operator that switches on and off the the, the battery <laughs> that, that just doesn't work so it does need to be automated and what we see today in europe is that that when storage is deployed typically people have have customized the software needed for that one single deployment which is obviously what you need to do but we i think in order to do something more than just pilots in order to do something repeatable we will need to see that software get much more uh, adaptable and much more of a platform architecture and that's what we're seeing in the US, a number of very sophisticated companies in the US developing that. But this is to some you know, fairly large extent, the local, you need to adapt to local uh, circumstances. And, and those US companies have not done this for Europe yet. So I think in Europe, this is really the bottleneck. Um, and, and in the US, that's perhaps not the bottleneck anymore. So you, you actually see large scale, a repeatable storage deployment now in parts of the US. And, and that's definitely where I would like to see Europe in just two or three years from now. You just mentioned the importance of the ecosystem when we talked about technology. What about the importance of collaboration with the stakeholders in the industry, especially also with policymakers or investors? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just very important. I mean, this is what solar is all about. And this is what I um, I feel a lot of times it's not understood when we 
when we talk about ourselves as a company, what is it that we're really good at? I would actually say we're really good at orchestrating this complex network of actors. And it's everyone from the people who, you know, the construction people on the rooftop to the insurance agents that have specialized in, in, in solar rooftop insurance uh, to, I don't know, the utility trading desk that, that might be the off-taker of the PPA. There's just so many counterparties with so many different perspectives. And then that that's only from the view of an individual deal and then when you want to look at it as an industry you can add of course the regulators um uh, and, and all kinds of policy makers the general public you know the grid operators etc solar is right in the middle of energy security and real estate and and uh and finance you know and these are three areas that are so critical to a lot of things in society there's a great book if i can go off on a small small tangent here there's a great book by someone called gretchen Backe. Uh, and that book is called The Grid. Uh, she's a U.S. economic historian who's been uh, doing research on the, the how the electricity grid emerged. And one of her key theses uh, that that she's that she's using this book to explain is that the grid is a technical thing, of course, to start with. It's a uh, it's massive. It's the world's largest machinery, but it's also cultural. Uh, being it's it's a, it's a kind of an ecosystem of stakeholders. The grid has grown over hundred years to become the most important central machinery of our society, and 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 throughout those hundred years, it's just accumulated a lot of permanent stakeholders with permanent roles and, and a certain culture of how things are done, their own language, etc. I mean, it's really kind of um, it's really something that's very entrenched, and now suddenly that that whole system is just filled with new actors, such as ourselves. And I think basically what you're asking, or, or where I'm heading with this with this answer, is that we have to be, I think, as new actors in the system, we have to be very humble, um, and realize that that this is something critical for society, uh, and we need to have empathy for how that system is working. And we also need to be humble in terms of how massive it is. I mean, it's so big. Electricity is literally, it's the mother of all markets. It's a, it's a $2.5 trillion uh, global industry. And, and with electri electrification happening, that, that industry is just going to be get bigger. Um, and then somewhat here we turn up and saying that we're going to disrupt this industry. And, you know, that's a bold claim. The, the industry will be disrupted, but, but it has to be done in a way that's, um, that's very careful about the service that's being delivered to society, essentially. Yeah, that's a good pointer. And Harald, I have one last question for you. Uh, in your opinion, what are the biggest changes that we need to make to transition faster together? Yeah, so my, you know, my spontaneous answer from the heart to that question is is actually, you know, we need to build more companies doing good things because I, for one, believe in entrepreneurship and the power of of just building companies to deliver new products and new services. And and if, I mean, if I didn't believe in that, I wouldn't be an entrepreneur myself. I wouldn't channel my energy and my calling into entrepreneurship. So I guess it's a very generic answer. And maybe you wanted something more specific. I actually think in most situations that we see right now, what's missing is a certain company. You know, you can even see a lot of times like this is the company that's missing here. And, and someone needs to build that company and someone with a lot of passion and intelligence and, and drive needs to put a company in place to solve that, that issue. So, yeah, just more entrepreneurs. That would be my answer. Thanks for these great insights, Harold, especially the reminder that the grid is such a large machinery holding us together was great. Thank you so much, Matthias. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, truly, the grid is one big machinery holding us together. And what's so exciting is the transition is going through. So thank you for helping to shed light on that. 
Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. It was a thought-provoking discussion about the huge potential of solar energy to help us transition faster. Next week, in the final episode of Series 10 of DNVGL Talks Energy, I speak with two of my colleagues, Lucy Craig and Ditlev Engel, about some of the key findings from the forthcoming 2020 Conclusion Report, parts of DNVGL's Transition Faster Together series. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com slash talksenergy.